Before we dive into our spiritual meal this morning, we want to pray for teachability, and as is our pattern, not just for Memorial Day, we want to pray for uh, our active military peace officers and firefighters. But let me just say a word about Memorial Day. Um, I'm not going to say a lot about it, but Memorial Day is the day in which we somberly and respectfully think about our war dead. Um, without meaning to, I just kind of went to Google this week, you know, and typed went to the images and typed Memorial Day. And about half of the graphics are Happy Memorial Day, you know, and people are eating hot dogs and playing pickleball and stuff like that. And, you know, for many Americans, it's just the first, it's the beginning of summer. I know summer technically doesn't start based on astronomy till the middle of June, but I mean, it's, it's, it's the way we define summer, and it's fun, 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 and, and I'm all for that. Listen, there is no off position on the fun machine in my heart, okay? Just know that. I'm, I'm nothing but fun. I'm the funnest person I know. I mean, seriously. Nobody's more fun than I am. However, the purpose of Memorial Day is for us to reflect on our war dead. We've had one, more than one million American service men and women die fighting our wars. Over 600,000 in the Civil War. About 450,000 in World War II. 50, over 50,000 in Vietnam War. Since late 2001, we have had active military fighting, uh, on the ground in Afghanistan and or in Iraq for 17 straight years, plus special forces have done other things in places like Yemen to prevent really bad things from happening. Uh, and we often give these people six months or nine months or a year uh, deployed, bring them back for six months and send them back, and then bring them back for six months and then send them back. We've done multiple deployments with some of these folks, and it, it's a it's a it's a tough thing. But on Memorial Day, we're thinking specifically of those who have died, allowing us to play pickleball and roast hot dogs and enjoy the facility like this on a Sunday morning of Memorial Day weekend. So uh, realize Memorial Day is about that. And so rather than just, uh, it's nothing, it's nothing wrong with having fun on the long Memorial Day weekend, and God bless you if you do that. But as you think Memorial Day, think about people. Um, I think it's hard not to think of the D-Day landing in Normandy, if you've seen the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan. And uh, somebody once said that if we had mass media, CNN, and Fox News covering that event live or covering Gettysburg live where 50,000 men died in two days, uh, nobody in a living room, no civilian in a living room hundreds and thousands of miles away could say, yeah, we want to do more of that. Let's do more of that. No rational civilian living, you know, in normal circumstances would say, yeah, that's a good thing. But as we often say from Scripture, God's justice isn't pretty. But it's always preceded by God's grace. And in an evil world, sometimes the lesser of evils is all you've got. And quite often we'll clip a, a video of a police officer tackling somebody and hitting him hard. And we're going, oh my gosh, that's... Uh, that's police violence. That's that's police brutality. And there are bad policemen out there, like bad teachers and bad preachers and bad doctors, but the vast majority of peace officers are doing the right thing. And that clip doesn't show everything. What happened before that video started, which they may or may not have edited for CNN or Fox News, will show this guy shooting a little girl in the head, kicking the mother's head in, and trying to knock the weapon out of the officer's hand. And then the officer gets the upper hand dives on the guy and punches him once. And that's all you see. So you've got to put this in context. So without trying to be uh, a Debbie Downer here, let's just remember, and this is, uh, Rob O'Neill is the SEAL that actually killed Osama bin Laden. And he wrote an article this week that said, don't wish me a happy Memorial Day. Now why, why would he say that? Because Memorial Day is about reflecting soberly about our war dead. And he had, as a SEAL, he had buddies that had been killed. And so when you have the war dead in the last 18 years, 17 years of the conflict we've been fighting, think about the the wives that don't have a husband or the husbands that don't have a wife or the children who've lost their father or their mother or somebody's lost a grandfather, something like that, right? That's who we ref- should reflect on, at, at least at some level. I had, I did some research this week and found out that Congress... 30 years ago passed a law that kind of said, 
at 3 o'clock p.m., I think that would be 1,500 hours, uh, local time, you're supposed to spend five minutes reflecting on our war dead. So, that, well, Memorial Day, that's, that's tomorrow, not today. But, uh, yeah, you know, we've we got to put this in context. There's actually a larger principle there. Freedom is never free. You know, people talk about public schools are free. No, they're not. Taxpayers are paying a lot of money in that direction. Or it's not always being spent as effectively or efficiently as it could be, probably. But there's nothing free. No such thing as a free lunch, right? Freedom isn't free. That's true for our political and religious freedom under the U.S. Constitution. And that's certainly true for our spiritual freedom, right? Uh, because Christ died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. But apart from the death of Christ, as Paul says, if righteousness comes from obeying the rules, then Christ died needlessly. The only reason Christ died is because we owed a debt we couldn't pay for ourselves and that principle that freedom isn't free is emphasized on Memorial Day or should be. So don't miss that. And please tell your grandkids about this, your kids about this, because they're not necessarily being t- told this in the popular media, right? But the cool thing is the reason that we grieve but not as those without hope is because we serve a risen Savior. Now, the thing about it is a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. But the, meaning Definite article on purpose. The risen Savior, Buddha, is not risen. We've been to Chiang Mai, Thailand. they got a part of his collarbone in a pagoda there. You can go see it. Jonathan's very close to there right now. Okay, Both sets of twins are in Thailand. But they're coming back on Tuesday. Thank you, Wendy, for reminding me of that. Lord willing. Uh, but, yeah, Lord willing, we'll go to uh, the Garden Tomb next uh, May. Hey, Dustin, beg borrow or steal the money you need to go to Israel. I'll help you. I'll help you with begging, not with the stealing. But uh yeah, we we serve a risen savior and that's the that's the whole essence of Christianity. As Paul said, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, our faith is worthless. It's worthless. And he's writing in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. So um, as we think about Memorial Day, let's think about it Christianly and let's think about it based on what it really is. And I'm not saying you can't have fun tomorrow. Uh, Debbie and I had a delightful day yesterday, and we already got plans to go to Red Lobster tomorrow. So that's always a good thing. But uh, uh, it's bigger than that. It's more important than that. We're very, very blessed. The Americans are such big whiners. We just whine about something. This verse in the Bible says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Some people want to tra- change that to say, do all things while grumbling and complaining. And that's not what it says in the original Greek. I've translated it personally, I can tell you. Uh, but I'm tempted to do that, too. So, uh, tell you what, Steve, if you would uh, lead us in prayer, teachability, troops, peace officers, firefighters. Let's pray for uh, those uh, who have lost loved ones in the military in, in the last 17 years, particularly uh, for them today, okay? Thank you very much, Steve. Let's uh, warm up our capacity for abstract thinking before we dive into the epilogue here with some abstract thinking warmer-uppers. What do you call a guy named Lee who no one talks to? Lonely. See, lonely would be the Lee that nobody talks to. Uh, We're going to do the rest of these. (laughs) What did one wall say to the other wall? What did one wall say to the other wall? Meet you at the corner. What do 21st century turtles use to talk to one another? Shell phones. Not laugh out loud funny, but mildly amusing. What do you, this is my favorite one, Murray, and you're going to use this. You groan at them, but you use them, don't you? Be honest now. You can't, you're not supposed to lie in church, man. Uh, what do you call an alligator in a vest? An investigator. <laughs> I told you to use it. Last but not least, hold your applause. Why are teddy bears never hungry? Because they are always stuffed. Think about it. Book of Second Peter looks like a big arch, which is the epilogue, uh, over a three-story building. Talks about holiness. Wholeness, comprehensively embracing the Lordship of Christ in the Christian life, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays. Heresy, false moral and doctrinal teaching. You're going to have to look out for it and not be influenced by it. 
and hope isn't we hoping it's all going to pan out in the end, but we're looking forward to and energized by what we've been promised about the way this thing turns out. And since this is going to be our last week in Second Peter, um, this is going to be our last week to use Anthony Foreman's super flashcards. So, uh, Eric, I told uh, Henry I'd always use him as the middle guy, but since he's not here today, I'm going to ask you to come up. And, uh, yeah, so I want you to be right in the middle. I'll give you a flashcard in a minute. Come, come, come up. Now, Dustin, this is totally up to you. If you don't want to do this, it's fine. But <laughs> uh, why don't you be the first guy uh, on his right? Yeah, thank you. It's okay, right? Okay. And Murray, since your hands are weapons, I want you to be the guy on the end here. Okay? So we got three of my favorite TBFers right here. Okay, uh, chapter one, this bottom floor, it's about holiness or wholeness comprehensively embracing and living out the implication of the worship of Christ. So turn that around there, Dustin. So, and hold it up, bud. Can you lift that? He can only bench press about 500 pounds, but he can't lift this thing. But, uh, yeah, see the holes there? But in theory, as we comprehensively get with the program, we can look like that, or at least closer to that. Now, we have a standing legally in Christ that doesn't change. It's on your first day, your worst day, your last day as a Christian. Our walk should reflect that. It will not do it perfectly all the time, but it should be moving in that direction. Okay, so that's holiness. Okay, Eric, this is our favorite one. Chapter 2 is Harry C. See? That's Harry C. Kind of looks like President Trump, but uh, to me. Right? So you're going to have to trump heresy by uh, knowing what the real thing looks like. And there's all kinds of deviant versions of Christianity and spirituality out there today you want to watch out for. And then chapter 3 is hope. And, you know, that's actually saying that Jesus, 2,000 years after the basic Old Testament promises about the Savior were given, here he comes the first time and fulfills them literally. We happen to be about 2,000 years after the first coming of Christ. And as Second Peter says, it looks like it's not going to happen. The scoffers say, hey, it's the, 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 the delay is denial. It's not going to happen. But we're about as close to Christ as Abraham was. And so knowing that the first set of promises about the Lamb of God were fulfilled, literally we can be encouraged that the second set about the lion is going to come back and end history in God's terms are going to be fulfilled literally. So turn those guys around again. And let's make sure we all understand what the three parts of Second Peter are. What's the first part of Second Peter about? Holiness, yeah. Right there, don't forget that. What's chapter 2 about? Heresy. Heresy. False teaching, doctrinally and morally. And then uh, Murray, it's your last chance uh, for uh, approbation today. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And directed forward, hope means we look forward to something that energizes us and encourages us. And uh, anything you do for the Lord Jesus is never wasted, right? It's always good. Even if nobody notices or tells you how great you are, it's okay. All right. I thought those guys did a great job. Even Dustin. And that's that's good. No practice. Yeah. Okay. So let's look at the epilogue of the book of Second uh, Peter today. I think the overall message of the book is a Christ-centered hope looking forward to the way things are going to work out in the end as promised should motivate Trey now or Deborah Smith now to embrace a lifestyle of true holiness. Get Christ at the center of your pie chart, not just on the Sunday-Wednesday sliver of it, and avoid the heresies of false teachers. And again, hope is not hoping something might happen, pie in the sky by and by. It's holding a positive, optimistic perspective now based on eager expectation of a forward future with Jesus. Uh, there is an analysis of... The uh, epilogue, and it should look familiar, right? We saw holiness, heresy, and hope. In this epilogue, we have an inspired summary of the whole book of Second Peter in reverse order, just like a good communicator would do. He talked about holiness, heresy, hope in the book. Then he ends with hope, heresy, and holiness. So he starts and ends with holiness, but emphasizes the uh, the hope in the middle. Now, this is an amazing thing to me. I won't get too technical on you this hour of the morning on Sunday morning, but E.D. Hirsch of Yale University 20 years ago wrote a book called Validity and Interpretation, and he said good communicators in writing inevitably 
tell you what they're trying to do somewhere in their book, in their essay. It can be at the very beginning, can be at the end, can be in the middle. I always like to say, and this is the, uh, Hirsch called this intrinsic genre statement. Let's just call it the theme statement. The, the theme of Second Peter hangs at the back door in these last couple of verses, right? Uh, you see a lot of biblical books like that. The Gospel of John. At the end of the body of the Gospel of John, John says, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. I'm not telling you everything I could tell you. But these are written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ and believing you'd have eternal life in his name. So he's telling you why he's writing that book and including what he includes in that book. Uh, Ecclesiastes says, when it's all said and done, fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, Genesis 50, you intended this for evil, God intended it for good. That's kind of the way it works in the fallen world right now. So some Old Testament books and New Testament books have this theme statement at the end like Second Peter does. Some have it uh, at the very beginning. Book of Luke, Book of Acts, two sets by one guy, Dr. Luke. Basically say, hey, Theophilus, let me tell you what you need to know about the life of Christ and about the first generations of the church, and that applies to all Christians. First John begins with a statement, we want you to have fellowship with the apostles and fellowship with Christ. Let me tell you how that works. Romans 1 has a theme statement at the very beginning. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to Jews and even to Gentiles like us, right? Um, Galatians 1 has this theme statement. If anybody else, including an angel from heaven, preaches a different gospel than we preach to you, even if I come back and preach a different gospel, don't listen to him. Uh, now, here's where it gets interesting. Some of the biblical books have their theme statement in the middle. And we as Americans want instant gratification. So we want it at the very beginning or maybe to help us find it at the very end. But sometimes it's in the very middle. And uh, Ephesians is a good example of that. You've got six chapters. First three chapters talk about your standing, Dennis, as a Christian. It never deviates. It's what God does for you the first instant you trust in Christ. And then chapters four through six talk about what your, not your standing, but your walk should look like. And he hinges that at verses one through three of chapter four. Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Look at all you've got in Christ for three chapters. Now this is what you ought to be doing in your life and thinking so that it can your life will line up with that kind of thing. So uh, Ephesians is a good example of that. First Peter, Steve's favorite book now. Which is like First Peter or Second Peter better? Trick question. The politically correct answer has got to be they're both great, right? Right. But we emphasize that First Peter has a purpose statement in the middle. First, it talks about kind of faith under fire 101. Then the purpose statement of the overall book, and then faith under fire 102. And that purpose statement was basically keep on trusting the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. As spiritual aliens, don't get too at home here. Don't hold on to anything too tightly. Short timers on earth. Now, you know, uh, we've got Scott's brother and sister-in-law here, and so I'm going to have to, I've only got seven jokes, and they've all heard them about 17 times, but I've got fresh meat today. Uh, so, you know, when I turned 50, which was a long time ago now, my wife, my first wife, was very, very encouraging. She said, Brad, I think you're good. And I work out and stuff. So she said, uh, Brad, you're going to live to be 100. I said, thank you for saying that, dear. She said, yeah, because you look half dead right now. So, so you know, but even if you live to be 100, that's a very short time compared to eternity. So we're all short timers. And we don't know when our time is going to run out either. Christians, Carla Buchanan or uh, Olga Pollock, uh, should not be controlled by our emotions. Let those be appreciators, not initiators. But we should consistently live our lives centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where Second Peter starts with the holiness emphasis, right? So, boom. Now, I like this because the fact that these biblical books inevitably have a purpose statement somewhere. You just got to find it. It's just the key to good communication. Now, if Dustin starts twitching, it's going to be, this is going to be, this was the first slide, the first day I met Dustin, he had a, he had a big, what kind of hairdo did he have then? He had a big mohawk. And I thought, okay, uh, this is going to be interesting, okay, uh, maybe five or six of us could take him on if we have to, but he's a, he's a gentle giant, and he, he loves the Lord, and he loves his family, and he tolerates me, which is a good thing. But anyway, 
every semester in my first uh, class, and during almost every other class, I talk about three McCoy's three keys to effective public speaking or communication, and those are content. You got to have content. You got to have interesting, relevant, uh, up to date, specific content. That's for us just telling what the text means in context. You need clarity and connection, right? And I think the scripture has some things that are hard to understand. And, and we know that because Peter says that. But the main things are plain things. And these books are structured not like a riddle. Not even the book of Revelation is written like a riddle. If you just look at its structure, it just boom, 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 boom. It just put it on a line. So this idea that you can't understand it. If you're a believer, God, in effect, gives you a grace apparatus for perception to help you understand the big things. He also gives you some teachers, like James and me at this local church, but as we talked about Wednesday night, he gives you a lot of teachers, bigger than Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, to help you understand some of the details, and you're probably going to need some of that. But I love passages like this because I think a lot of Christians kind of blow through the last couple of verses or the first couple of verses, but quite often the whole key to the book is found at the very beginning or the very end. And just as he's emphasized holiness, heresy, and hope, chapter 1, 2, and 3, he emphasizes hope, heresy, and holiness in this epilogue as he finishes the book. So let's work through that this morning uh, briefly. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, go back to 3, 11 through 13, since all these things, everything you're going to see, Cadillacs end up in junkyards, it's all going to be destroyed. Nothing physical, the whole universe isn't going to last forever. Uh, be looking, Be looking for and reveling in the coming of the day of the Lord, this intervention that will end the current uh, status quo and bring us into the best of all possible worlds uh, because of which the heavens will be destroyed. But according to his promise, which is right on time, even though it takes thousands of years, but in God's mind, it's not a big deal. And we got to rest in that. We're looking for a whole new universe in which righteousness dwells. we got to have a new universe because as David Hume famously said, the famous critic if God is all good, he would want to defeat evil. If God were all powerful, he could defeat evil. But evil isn't defeated. So he concluded there is no all good, all powerful God. But there's a false premise in that argument. There's a time limit. Right? What he should yeah, thank you. Uh, he, we should say, but since evil isn't defeated yet, since there is an all good, all powerful God, he's going to defeat it. I wonder if there's any evidence. Does Jesus talk about that? Does the Bible talk about that? And really, I think you ought to swing that swing that argument around. If there is no God, if we're just molecules, there is no objective evil. So you've got nothing to complain about. You've got to assume there's an objective standard of, of good and, and bad and good and right and wrong before you can complain about evil, right? But I think the argument should be, since God is all good, we know he wants to defeat evil. Since God's all powerful, we know he can, right, Wendy? But evil's not permitted. So his purpose is for permitting evil. Real moral choices by creatures isn't finished yet, but when it's finished, it's got to look a lot like, I'd say exactly like what Revelation 21 and 22 says. And what Peter alludes to here in verse 13, that the therefore in 14 directly connects to. According to his promise, according to his character, is all good and all powerful. We're looking for a whole new universe in which evil will have been permitted, defeated, quarantined, and there ain't no more child molesters or wars or you, you won't need a military. You won't need a police force, okay? Uh, I think we're still going to play golf and pickleball and stuff, and we won't be perfect, okay? But uh, nobody will be using theological language and non-theological context in golf courses anymore. <laughs> Even if they shack a shot, which can happen, it's very embarrassing and hurts your score too. But since we're looking forward to these things and motivated by that hope, by that expectation, Nancy, postal weight, be diligent, be found in the Lord in peace, peace of mind. You're not freaking out over the current crisis of the day as if it's out of control. It looks like it's out of control, but God's got a plan. It's working out. And be spotless and blameless. Just generally live out your Christian life at work and at school and on prom night as much as you would at Sunday school. Um, and regard the patience of the Lord... Verse 9, the Lord's not slow about his promises about the second coming and the end of the world is coming. Uh, a thousand years like a day in his mind, it's no big deal. There's 2,000 years from Abraham to the first coming. It's about 2,000 years from Christ to the second coming. And I don't think it's going to be real long away, but I'm not setting any dates. 
Uh, he says, regard the patience of the Lord as an opportunity for us to live and share the gospel. Okay? Abby, you've got a chance to live and share the gospel in, at Bray School, right? And at Simmons Center, uh, Natalie, for you and every place else that you, uh, you interact with. And then he says, just as our beloved brother Paul. Now, Paul famously criticizes Peter Peg in Galatians chapter 2. Because Peter was being legalistic around Jewish Christians who were looking down their nose at Gentile Christians and even questioning their salvation. Because kind of the, the assumption in some of the early Jewish Christian minds was, I get the fact that Jesus was the Jewish Savior, the Jewish Messiah, so Jews who've been under the law can believe in him and be saved. But don't we have to make Greek pagans that worship a bunch of bizarre false gods, don't we have to make them Jews? before they can believe in the Jewish Messiah be saved? And the answer was no. The whole book of Galatians talks about that. But Paul very famously has to correct and criticize the Apostle Peter for not being clear about that in Galatians chapter 2. And so some scholars make a big feud there from then on between Peter and Paul. There's no evidence of that. Uh, you won't believe this, but 29 and a half years into my pastor here, I've occasionally had elders suggest I could do something different or better. And I know that was an existential crisis for me the first several times, and I wasn't ontologically perfect. And I eventually got over it and realized there's almost always some truth there, right? Um, it's funny because uh, Dustin and Angel and, and Murray know that at, at Cameron University, uh, at the end of every semester, the students are supposed to go online and, and evaluate their teachers, and I hope they throw out the two worst ones and the two best ones because some of these people will say nasty things about you, you know. And But typically, at the end of the spring semester, they would fill that out. But you couldn't see that as a teacher until like September 1st. And I thought there was so much of a delay there. It didn't have much, come, much sense for me. But uh, for some reason, this semester, we got our results on Thursday. And, uh, you know, you teach a religion class. At that level, you're an evangelical. You tell them you're an evangelical. I'm not going to deny my faith to teach this class, but I'm not going to be preaching Christianity either. We're just going to survey the five major religions and kind of compare and contrast them. And so your one fear is that your uh, your chair is going to think you're pushing something because then they don't like, they really don't like evangelicals to teach religion. Uh, but on the other hand, having an atheist teach, you know, religious studies is like having a blind guy teach art appreciation, Right? That's that's my answer to that one, but uh, yeah, sure enough. And we had I had class in in Lawton, and I had class on TV and uh, on TV in Lawton, and I was teaching in Duncan. And I had a, some really nice things were said, but one person said he 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 never asked us to ask questions, and I think I do ask him to ask questions, especially the Lawton group didn't really want to answer questions. I think they were all sleeping. That's just between you and me. But uh, he said several things. That I'm praying about, should I preempt this and just call my chair and say, look, he said X, but I'm saying I did Y. It's not, it's not terrible. It's not like I did something horrible or immoral, but, uh, you know, you get these critiques and uh, people don't like stuff. But anyway, Paul famously critiqued Peter in the Bible in Genesis 2. And so some of the scholars see they've got a long standing feud. I don't think that happened at all. I think, uh, Paul probably said that. Um, no doubt said it with the right spirit. And I think Peter said, you know what? You're probably right. I think I would, I think he probably graciously received that. But anyway, and this would have been sometime after this, Peter says and refers to Paul as his beloved brother. He says, our beloved brother. He commends Paul and he says, according to the wisdom given him, Paul wrote like 13 New Testament letters. Now, depending on when second Peter was written, it was probably six months before Peter was, was, uh, crucified upside down in Rome, probably at least 12 of Paul's 13 New Testament letters would have been written. And maybe even the final one, 2 Timothy, is possible. But you've got a corpus of Pauline documents that are being uh, distributed among the church that Peter's familiar with. And Peter's saying, hey, look, you know, as long as we're waiting for the Lord, don't just sit there, but be active, be living out your Christian life. Just like, and I'm not the only one saying this, Paul says this, through the wisdom given to him, inspiration, as also in all his letters, speaking of these things about salvation, in which there are some things hard to understand. Romans 9, Ephesians 1, you know, there's stuff that's hard to understand in Scripture. 
But the main things are the plain things, right? Which the untaught and unstable distort. That word means to twist or to crush. As they also do the rest of the scriptures. Now watch this. Before the council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., before the council of Carthage in 397 A.D., when the New Testament letters were canonized, the documents were canonized, officially recognized as scripture by the visible church, these things were already seen as scripture. They weren't waiting. Listen, Isaac Newton, Trey, didn't invent gravity. Gravity was already there. He just described it. The New Testament church didn't create the New Testament. The truths of the New Testament created the New Testament church. Now, why are you waiting until the 4th century to start having church councils to talk about these things anyway? Why didn't they do it right after the apostles died? What was our legal status right after the apostles died as Christians under the Romans? It wasn't good. It was like capital punishment. So you couldn't have a big theological meeting like that or they'd all be rounded up and probably burned you know, or, or had their heads chopped off that day. So watch this. This is Peter writing in 65, 66, 67 AD. He's looking at the bulk of Paul's letters. He's calling them scripture. He's not waiting for the council of Nicaea, you know, 250 years later. And I will say this, however, you know, when you look at the Bible, you've got a big book with two parts. The Old Testament is before Christ, New Testament is after Christ. Uh, typically, when the New Testament talks about the Scripture, it's talking about the Old Testament. But this would be an example where we're clearly talking about New Testament books in the New Testament, which is interesting. But uh, let me say this, and I want to make you think for scratch your head for a minute. Peter here, in talking about Paul's authorship of these scriptural letters, Paul's putting the letters of Paul on the same level as the, and I know, Angel, you know this, and Murray, you know this, Peter's putting Paul's letters on the same level as the 24 slash 39 books of the Old Testament. Now that's not 24 39ths. That's 24 or you can call them 39. Watch this. Do you realize that the Hebrew Old Testament has 24 books? But the Christian New Testament has 39 books? But do you realize that doesn't matter? Let me show you what I mean. It doesn't. That wasn't a joke. Okay, here's the Old Testament. We call that Old Testament, right? Stuff before first coming of Christ. Jews don't call it the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. And linguists argue about whether that final cough is a K-H or C-H when you go from Hebrew to English. So you'll see it spelled two different ways. They're not wrong. They're just two different theories. But that term Tanakh is an acronym for the law, the prophets, and the writing. You just take, I like acronyms. So do, do the Jews, you know, so there's nothing wrong with acronyms necessarily. And it breaks down like this. When you look at the 24 books of the Tanakh, what Christians call the Old Testament, why, why, why don't the Jews, it makes sense the Jews don't call it the Old Testament, right? There's nothing old about it for them. It's old, but it's, it's the, the scripture, period. We believe the Old Testament was partial, preliminary, and pointing to something and someone. To whom was the Old Testament pointing? The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And now the New Testament explains that in detail for us. But you break down the contents of the Old Testament or the Jewish Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, they call it. You've got the five books of Moses. You've got Joshua, Judges, Samuel, in that order. You've got a book called the Twelve. Do we have a book called the Twelve in all Old Testament? We don't, do we? Do we have a book called Ezra, Nehemiah in our Old Testament? No. So how in the world can 24 equal 39? Well, the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh are the exact same content as the 39 books in your Old Testament, but in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint, in the English Old Testament, you've got, uh, in the Septuagint, in the English Bible, we have 12 books. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I could say that again, but I probably get it wrong. But you got those 12 books as 12 books. In the Tanakh, you got those 12 books as one book called the 12. Okay? Ezra, Nehemiah is one book. We make it as two books. You got Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Those are three books in the Tanakh. Those are six books in your Bible, because you've got 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. You cut it in half. So it's the exact same content, just packaged differently. 
And the point is, I think, of verses 14 through 16 of first of Second Peter here is our anticipation of Christ out of this world uh, ending of human history on God's terms ought to anticipate us as we live in a very fallen, very dysfunctional world system, right? Now, talking about hope, when you analyze the book, you know, you got chapter one, holiness, Dustin held that up today. Chapter two, heresy, you've got, uh, Eric held that up, right? The heresy. Chapter three, Murray had hope. That's the, the major movement of the book. But then when you get to the epilogue, he sur- touches those bases again in inverted order because he wants to kind of build to and away from a center. That's just the way they think. When you open a scroll, you tend to sense the symmetry toward the center. That's just the way the ancients tend to think. We don't tend to think like that. So I think that's a pretty cool cool deal. It emphasizes our hope as the capstone of this book. All right, let's go to chapter uh, 3, verse 17. Move from hope to heresy. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, uh, knowing what beforehand? Now he's not talking about the new heavens, new earth. He's talking about the fact that, in chapter 2, talking about heresy, many, not just a few, will follow all kinds of destructive heresies and because of them, including some people in Christian churches that may be regenerate but very poorly taught, the way of the truth will be maligned and second-guessed. You, therefore, beloved, knowing that false teachers are going to be out there and some of them are going to have big mass media platforms and, and be rich and famous, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of these unprincipled men that don't base they're teaching on what scripture clearly says and fall from your own steadfastness by watering down the essence of the faith. Second Peter and uh, second John and third John emphasize that same idea that falling away from the truth claims of Christianity is uh, just as bad as falling away from the moral uh, ideas of Christianity. And also in addition to being able to stand for and hold as a conviction, these core truths According to 1 Peter chapter 3, watch this, we're supposed to not only be able to hold them ourselves, kind of spiritual offense, we ought to be able to play some spiritual defense. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your lives, get him at the center of your pie chart, and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. It's not enough for you to be able to think through the essence of the faith. You've got to be able to know what the major arguments being used in our day against them are saying, so you can stand for the faith. Now, I'm going to share something with you I've talked about a few times. This is not, I've just thought about this very superficially. Uh, One of these days when I have some time to sit down and write some stuff uh, and uh, reflect on things, I may write a pamphlet on this. But I see at this point, subject to change, and the numbers are just uh, tentative. I may change the numbers some. I personally see the three theological phases of American history, American culture, probably a better way to say it, okay? And we've got a happy face, kind of I'm not sure face, and an unhappy face, right? Phase one is, and I put 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? So that's why I got that number, to roughly 1900. Christianity is the norm and good. Well, you know, most of the founding fathers were deists, but nobody objected to Christian morality, including Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson had his own Bible. He took the four Gospels, cut out all the miracles of Jesus, didn't believe in miracles, but held on to the moral teachings. Now, he didn't necessarily live up to them. Nobody does. But at least they were discreet. And if we found out some of the stuff those guys were doing, they wouldn't have been electable, because the whole culture... So if you're going to cheat on your wife, what's going to say you're not going to cheat on your taxes, cheat on your uh, stewardship as a president or something else? I mean, we don't think like that anymore. But um, And David showed you, you know, good things can come out of really bad circumstances. But, yeah, the culture as a whole saw Christianity as the norm for the morals of, Christ, of the culture, whether they were born-again Christians or not. And it was all a good thing, you know. Uh, I mean, Madison said, uh, you know, his constitution is written for a, a, a religious people, and he meant a Christian people, people bought Christian morality. That was not doubted by anybody, even by the atheists that happened to live then. They bought the basic morality as it worked, you know. Second phase of American history, where I am now as I'm looking at it, from roughly the turn of the 20th century to the late 60s, uh, 1970, 
religion is good, including, and probably maybe especially Christianity. I mean, I grew up as a little kid in Opelika, Florida, outside Miami, and I would wake up early, I've told you this, and I'd turn on the TV. We had three channels back then. And I'd watch the test pattern. That's how bored I was at 6.30 in the morning. And at 7 o'clock, or maybe at 6 o'clock in the morning, they'd come, they'd turn, they'd turn on the, the jets. They'd play the national anthem. This was on secular TV stations in Miami, Florida. Don't try this today. It's all in Spanish today. But, uh, you know, probably singing the Nash, Mexican national anthem. But anyway, you turn it on, they'd play the national anthem. Then they would have the Lord's Prayer on secular t- This isn't C- CBN or something. This is uh, ABC, local affiliate, TVJ, KTVJ, I think it was called. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, that's the way the broadcast day started. And they, the uh, public service announcements quite often was, attend the church of your choice. It wasn't like give to age research or give to big brothers or something, which, may, which is great. That's fine. But uh, it was attend the church of your choice. I mean, Paul Malab was paying somebody to put public service announcements. Attend the church of your choice. You hear a lot of public service announcements like that today. I mean, the Mormons are trying to get you to go to their church. I wouldn't re- recommend that myself. But I mean, you're not going to get NBC giving free airtime saying attend the church of your choice. Because how about the Jews? How about the Hindus? How about the atheists? You know, you're going to offend somebody. But that was the culture still said, you know, religion is a good thing, including Christianity. President Eisenhower famously said uh, he thought that everybody ought to believe in uh, a religion, and I don't care which one it is. That was Eisenhower. <laughs> but he thought it was important to believe in some kind of religion, right? Uh, and then, black is on purpose, were increasingly the elites in Western civilization see religion is bad, especially Christianity. We've got to start with them. Now, we talk about Islamophobia. How about Christophobia? I mean, the elites are filled with Christophobia. Now, you're going to say, uh, Brad, it's not that bad. And by the way, I would say, first phase, Carol, the elites affirm Christian, Christian norms, whether they lived them or not, whether they really were believers or not. Uh, the elites condoned Christian norms for the little people, for sure, whether they're doing it or not. Now, the elites condemn Christian norms. It's repressive, it's backward, it's hate speech. It's not that bad, Brett. Yeah, it is. God is not great, lowercase g on purpose. It's Christopher Hitchin. Christopher Hitchens, who unfortunately died of cancer a few years ago, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennert are called the four horsemen of the new atheists. New atheists are not saying anything different than what Bertrand Russell said, and I am not a Christian in the 20th century, but they have a different tact. Bertrand Russell respectfully disagreed with Christians and said, you're just wrong. The new atheists say, you're wrong and you're repressive and evil and we're not going to permit you to promote your faith. They're wanting to reinterpret the First Amendment from freedom of religion to freedom of worship. You can get together on Sunday, say whatever you want to inside the building, but don't let it affect the public square because that's repressive and bigoted and you can't do that. Uh, watch this. Uh, Michael Kinsley... And uh, my eyes are bad here. Uh, this was the number one New York Times bestseller, God's Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Uh, written with tremendous brio. I'm not sure what that means. I should have looked it up. I, you know, it would take four seconds, but I didn't have time. Uh, written with tremendous brio. Is that how you say that? B-R-I-O? Brio? Brio? I don't care. And great wit. An all-out attack on all aspects of religion. He's celebrating that. And guess what? It won... The National Book Award, he was a finalist for the National Book Award. This is several years ago now. This is the elites in our culture. Okay, Christopher Hitchens, which was, who's a very interesting guy and really bright and a good debater, said, I challenge you to find one good or noble thing which cannot be accomplished without religion. He's the guy who said how religion poisons everything. That's the, the, the problem. The reason we have social problems in this culture is because of religion, especially Christianity. That's that's what they're saying. Uh Peter's warning us not to let that surprise us, right? It's impossible. Here's another statement. And he's smart enough to know he'd have to be omniscient to be an atheist, for reasons we talked about before. But Christopher Hitchens says, I'm not even an atheist so much as an anti-theist. I not only maintain that all religions are versions of the same untruth. Stephen Prothero tells you they're all climbing different mountains, aren't they? They're not different ways up the same mountain. They're climbing different mountains, right? 
But I hold that the influence of churches, now he's getting personal, and the effect of religious belief is positively harmful. Number one, Carol, isn't that an oxymoron? Positively harmful? See? But I know what he means. Uh, yeah, so when we read that you better watch out, be on your guard, don't be carried away, realize that we're going to be not only disagreed with, but vilified and marginalized, that's happening in USA. Not, not, we're not talking about Bangladesh here, folks. We're not talking about North Korea. We're talking about right now. Um, it's not good, and it's getting much worse all the time. As Henry Kissinger said, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean I don't have real enemies. The good news is, you know, one of the arguments against Christianity is, and I know, Stan, you've got a friend I think you're praying for who says, people basically embrace the religion they were brought up in, and that's where they get it, and that's all it is. Let me show you a quote from Christopher Hitchens' brother, who's an evangelical Christian. He believes Jesus was crucified for sins and rose again. This is Christopher Hitchens' brother, Peter Hitchens, talking about an aspect of the brave new world secularism is giving us, which will show you any kind of perversity, but it doesn't want you to look at a sonogram of a baby in the womb. Isn't that odd that that's the one thing they're going to censor? This is Christopher Hitchens' brother, who's a Christian, and also a brilliant guy, too. Abortion, he's just saying, this is so weird. Nobody seems to notice. Abortion is the only event that modern liberals think too violent and obscene to portray on TV, movies, mass media. They don't want you to see it. You don't, don't, look, don't look at it. Just think of it as a clump of cells. Don't worry about that. It's got a head. It's got brainwaves. It's got a hand. All that stuff. This is not because they are squeamish or prudish. It's because if people knew what abortion really looked like, it would destroy their pretense that it's a civilized answer to a problem of what to do about unwanted babies. Now, without getting off on too much of a tangent, uh, I found uh, an old movie review by Roger Ebert, who also passed away a few years ago. So this is 10 years ago. It's about a movie called Hannibal, which was the follow-up to Silence of the Lambs. Uh, and I know you're thinking now, well, there was a movie about a clown who molested and tortured children, which was a big seller recently. But just to, my point is, when a culture rejects common sense biblical values, thou shalt not steal, <laughs> like that, uh, rather than becoming rational, the culture becomes irrational. Evil is seen as good, good is evil. And I'm not promoting this movie at all. I hate it. I don't want to see this movie. I haven't seen a movie. But here's the thing. Talking about this movie, Roger Ebert, who wasn't a Christian as far as I know, he said, if this movie proves nothing else, it proves that a man cutting off his face and feeding it to his dogs, if it doesn't get a NC-17, which is kind of like an X rating, I guess, nothing ever will. It was rated R. It was apparently extremely graphic. He points out that the novel on which the book was based was actually worse than the movie, but face-eating and man-eating boars are still in here, along with the man whose skull is popped open so that its non-essential parts of his brain can be sliced off and sautéed for dinner. Sautéed for dinner. Now, here's the punchline. Here's the bottom line. This is a secular movie critic probably 10 years ago, and it's much worse now, I'm assuming. He says, many still alive, like me and, and Ben, not that you're not as old as I am, but you're going to catch up soon. Older? Oh, is that possible? Okay. Many still alive will recall when a movie like this could not be contemplated, much less filmed and released by a major motion picture company. So, so great is our sophistication that we giggle when earlier generations would have retched. You got a guy cutting his face off, feeding it to dogs, opening up a guy, living guy's brain, cutting parts off to feed to uh, was Hannibal Lecter, whatever his name was. Uh, he says, the brain-eating scene is called special effects. The face-eating, uh, he goes on from there. I won't read it. Uh, one of the, the actress, Julianne Moore, who was the actress, said, uh, well, the point is, don't worry about the violence. It's just a fable of good versus evil, although she does say she actually had to talk to her shrink about it. So, you know, we're celebrating this perverse ultraviolence ultra as entertainment 
And let me wonder why uh, disaffected teenage boys get a weapon and after playing hours of video games, of course, they can't concentrate on stuff at school for more than five minutes. We, and we don't want to make them think at church. Let's, let's not make high school kids think about God at church for any length of time, any depth, or the Bible. Why waste their time? But they can spend, you know, and I'm not against video games, okay? But let's kill Nazis or something. I am now, it's just me. But, um, you know, but you get these kids that are told they're highly evolved apes. There's nothing to look forward to. Everybody's against them. They're living in the best place in the world in all human history. You get three squares a day, no problem, all this stuff. If you have $5, you can eat yourself to be fat and lazy with no problem. You know, go to Bangladesh. Go to Mothrock, Jordan, there. If you can get 800 calories a day, it's a miracle, right? And we wonder why some of these things happen, and we think that, you know, if you take away hammers, nobody's going to misuse hammers anymore. Here's the good news. I don't know what happened between, uh, the, unfortunately, Christopher Hitchens, the guy we started with, died of cancer a couple years ago, painfully. Uh, and I take no relish in that at all. Uh, it's a horrible thing. But uh, according to uh, Larry Totton, if you don't know him, you should know that name. He's a, a Christian professor. But he, uh, after debating Christopher Hitchens several times in major debates, struck up a friendship with him. And according to Larry, Christopher Hitchens was considering Christianity on his deathbed. Now, some people don't believe in deathbed confessions. That's fine. Jesus does. And so, (laughs) the thief on the cross who was a terrorist murderer, remember me when you come to your kingdom? What does Jesus say? Man, I wish you'd talk to me last week. Right. Okay, back to the text. We looked at hope, heresy. Let's look at holiness, and then we'll finish our consideration of uh, this epilogue. Verse 18, but grow in grace and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Uh, to grow in grace is to be developing in our awareness and appreciation and expression of God and his grace. You know, Jesus tells a parable about a guy that owes like a billion dollars. It's just an unbelievable debt he's got. He's no way he can pay it. And the guy he owes it to is going to throw him in prison. And the, the the debtor just begs him, please show me mercy, show me mercy. And the guy says, you know what? I'm just going to write the whole debt off. You're, it's, it's gone. Don't worry about it. A billion dollars. That very same guy walks down the street, bumps into a guy who owes him $500, starts beating him up. I'm going to take you to small claims court. you got to give me that $500. And the Lord says, can you believe how ungrateful people are? Just after he gets forgiven a billion dollars, he's making a big deal out of $500. And the point was, think of all the stuff Jesus... How many of your sins were future when Jesus died on the cross? All of them. How many did he pay for on the cross? All of them. You know how many were forgiven when you trusted him? All the ones he died for, as far as your standing is concerned. And uh, I don't want to go there myself, but you can probably think of something that you, you did that was so perverse or so embarrassing or so inappropriate, you would hope and pray nobody but God knows about it, right? Uh, you know, at our worst moments, we all look pretty bad, right? And when you think of all that Christ has forgiven us, we ought to be able to cut other people and start at home, you know? Not just church people. Start with your wife. Start with your husband. Julie, cut Ron a little slack. He's not perfect, but he's trying to make some progress here, Okay. More hangs around James, the better off he's doing, you know, so there's hope, you know. Uh, growing grace in our awareness of how great the grace of God is in calling us, saving us, keeping us, providing for us, appreciation, expression. We ought to be gracious people. Uh, knowledge. That word for knowledge here isn't epinosis, the heart knowledge. It's head knowledge. That's the raw material. You have to understand intellectually these truths, then embrace them as truth. And leave your life around them. And he purposely uses the first stage, the awareness of truth. But then you've got to embrace it with your full heart, right? So love Christ like, uh, love, love your wife like Christ loved the church is what God's telling Dustin today, among other things, right? He's got to understand kind of what that means. Love doesn't mean feel good about her. See, it's easy to feel good about somebody who looks like that. She's, she's cute, you know? Good job. You know, but it's more importantly, you seek her highest good. That's what agape love means. It's not emotion, it's volition. You're seeking her highest good. And he's going to provide for her and protect her and guide her. And listen, 
I don't do everything my wife tells me to do. She's only right 99.9% of the time. If I did everything she told me to do, I'd be wrong 0.1% of the time. And I can't, come to think of it, I'm much worse than that. Maybe I should start doing what she's telling me to do. Yeah, I'm going to think about that. Take this to heart. Here's the happy ending. Did uh, Scott tell you all our messages have happy endings? We're all happy when they end, right? Yeah, I hope you've enjoyed Second Peter. I, you know, I, I taught First Peter last year, not intending to follow it up with Second Peter. And Steve and some other people gave me some nice feedback. And I do think that these two books, for whatever reason, don't get preached and, and taught as often, maybe as Romans and Colossians, and there, you know, or Gospel of John. There are some books that are just so cool and so relevant. Uh, Christians major on those, and I do too. But this is a lot of good stuff in First and Second Peter. And my objective as a Bible teacher is not to wow you with my sermon structure. It's to walk you through texts and try to explain what it means in context so you can understand the meaning. And that doesn't go away. You can have that with you next week or five years from now. And then show you some of the implications, applications of the meaning. And that's all I'm doing. So uh, I, I hope that some of you can read through Second Peter now and make better sense of it than you did, you know, back in January when we started this series. And... Uh, but it's interesting that the book of Second Peter begins and ends with holiness, uh, which that's holiness right there. See, a lot of Christians, I was told in the church I grew up in, if we give God one-tenth of our money and one-seventh of our time, uh, he would bless us. And I thought that was a well of a good deal. Uh, I think they meant give 10% of your paycheck tithing and then come up to, come to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday. And I was happy to do that. But uh, that's not the biblical conception of discipleship. Biblical discipleship means you live the Christian life, not at church on Sundays and Wednesdays, but at work, on uh, out-of-town business trips, even on prom night, you know, uh, in your recreation, your family, and all this other good stuff you do. So begins with holiness, comprehensively putting Christ in the lordship of your life as a Christian day by day, and the ups and downs, good and bad, warning us about doctrinal and moral heresies. We do have real enemies out there. We don't hate our enemies. We pray for them, Right? but we don't allow them to influence us. It's not sophisticated to believe some of this stuff nowadays, but that's okay. And we ought to be motivated by the great news that Jesus will trump, as a technical term, not a reference to any politicians, the present world order and bring in the best of all possible worlds. Now, Lord willing, uh, next week, uh, I was going to just do a, a message on uh, how important Jerusalem is in the biblical scheme of things before, past, present, future, and why I personally think, you may disagree with me, you don't have to believe my political opinion, I think it's a very good thing that we did what Congress said the president should do back in President Clinton's administration, and that Clinton said he would do and didn't do, and George Bush said he would do and didn't do, and Barack Obama said he would do and didn't do, and Trump said he would do and he did. So that doesn't have to make you think Trump's the greatest thing since popcorn or anything like that, but at least... This was not something new. Congress said that the president should do this, and they said they would when they ran. I mean, you can look at YouTube. They all said they were going to do it, and none of them ever had time to do it. you got to sign a sheet of paper, you know? And I know it's more complicated than that. We'll talk about that, and I was going to do that next week and then start Life of Christ for the summer. But I, it dawned on me, I'm getting toward the end of my preaching career, and I've only taught Psalm 23, everybody's favorite psalm, The Lord's My Shepherd, Two times on the pulpit, once in Shreveport 35 years ago, and once here about 20 years ago. And I said, doggone it, I want to do it three times. So um, everybody's favorite Psalm, Psalm 23. So Lord willing, uh, and weather permitting, we live in Oklahoma, you never know about the weather around here. Uh, we'll look at Psalm 23 as a standalone. Then on June 10th, we'll do a message on Jerusalem, the history and the future of Jerusalem. And then we'll start a, a Life of Christ A through Z, walk through the life of Christ based on the English alphabet, can you believe it? It all lines up. So we're going to do that, Lord willing. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. You have spoken and you don't stutter in your word. Although there are some things hard to understand, uh, which to me is a blessing because as a Bible teacher, I love to dig into that stuff and try to be able to explain it to my friends and, and my brothers and sisters here. But uh, the main things are plain things. And little a little child... In fact, the Lord Jesus uses a little child as the example of saving faith. You don't have to be a theologian to be saved. But as believers, we ought to be able to think profoundly about the really important things, like who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what he's going to do 
and how we can actually walk with him spiritually, even though he's physically absent from us right now. So I pray that uh, as we finish this book, we won't forget this book, and I pray that some of us can now read through it and, and understand it better than we did uh, five months ago. And I pray that we've invested this time wisely to your glory. I pray you would uh, sanctify that process of understanding information, moving it from our head to our heart so it becomes conviction, um, not just mental awareness, and that we live it out consistently. And I, I pray these things in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.